Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 156. I'm your host, Chris Webster, with my co-host, Paul Zimmerman. Today we discuss remote tech challenges, computers taking our jobs, and we finish with some tech tips. Let's get to it. All right. Welcome to the show, everybody. Paul, how's it going? It is. Uh, it's going. <laughs> <laughs> we are recording right now on uh, on June 3rd, and that means that I have less than a month left before I leave the job I've had for 21 years. And That's that exciting. means that I'm doing all sorts of cleanup and fixes and brain dumps to everybody. We hired my replacement, and I have to mm-hmm. meet him face-to-face and start training him in, and I'm documenting. And then on top of everything, you know, I've mentioned many times that I spend part of my time in New York City and part of my time up an hour north in, uh, in the country and Brewster. For various personal reasons, I've been going back and forth and that takes a lot of mm-hmm. extra time. It's just been, uh, it's been a whirlwind couple of weeks here. Yeah, yeah, it's going. I'm not sure where I am. Speaking of going, are you still going or have you finally stopped someplace? That's a matter of interpretation because are you still going if you're never home? So, you know. I thought if you uh, live in an RV, you're always home. Exactly. So am I ever going? I'm always not going, but I'm always going at the same time. Okay. So So, are you like going (laughs) in a velocity sense anyway? I hope you're not recording this while while you're driving. (laughs) That is the next evolution. If I can get my wife to drive and I can podcast from the back, that's the next step here. Oh yeah. yeah. She's going to love that. (laughs) We just got here on Sunday, Memorial Day actually, or the day before Memorial Day to RV park north of Elko, Nevada, mm-hmm. where we're going to be our base of operations for the next two and a half months while we conduct an archaeological survey for a client up here. So it's a big environmental assessment, big partnership with two other companies, and it's going to be a fun, fun time. My wife and I are starting the project this weekend. We've got another crew member showing up next week. Mm-hmm. And then in July, we get this guy. He goes by Dr. Field Tech. I don't know what, uh, <laughs> I don't know what he's doing. But I, no, no, no. Somebody's been trying to make that happen. <laughs> I don't know that, that he goes by that. <laughs> That's just what I've heard, yeah. uh, you know, around on the street. So yeah. I'm excited, Paul, because you're going to be come out. You're mm-hmm. working with us. It's going to be your first job after working this other job for 21 years. Your first, your first job after this 21 year, you know, job. Yeah. And I'm glad that it's in archaeology. Was oh, your yeah. last job before this one also in archaeology? Or were you in, like, what did you do right before you got this job? Jeez, just before this one, <laughs> I, yeah, it, it would have been. I was, uh, I was working at the, uh, at the University, University of Pennsylvania Museum in Masca, which is a department that no longer exists. It was a Materials mm-hmm. Applied Science Center for Archaeology. It's oh, since wow. been replaced by, and I'm forgetting the acronym now, but another tech department within the museum. They did decide to restructure. Anyhow, when Masco went down, it was a big brouhaha. There were thousands of uh, different archaeologists all over the world signing that the, uh, you know, an open letter that the museum shouldn't close it. I got interviewed a couple of times actually by the, uh, by the Daily Pennsylvanian about you know, my thoughts on it, which is, you know, I was a minor player. I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't an important <laughs> part of Masca, but I was at the time, uh, yeah, so mid nineties, uh, till 2000, I was mostly the guy, the computer guy in the corner in the, uh, <laughs> where we had our computer lab. It was me and it was, uh, Bill Fitz who took over after me as the main computer guy and, uh, a roving cast of different students and some other people that were coming through there. And, uh, you know, every now and then we had an illustrator would, would work out of our office because it was big enough space that she could put up her drawing table in it. Yeah. So I think that was my last job, but I, it didn't, you know, it paid, 
pennies. <laughs> uh, and I was a grad student at the time. And every so often, the director of the department, Stuart Fleming, would send me off to various projects, typically in the Middle East. Actually, all the ones yeah. I did were in the Middle East to be surveyor because we had survey software that we developed, Bill and I developed at Masca. Nice. And they would send me off to be, you know, site surveyor for various projects. And that's, I've mentioned before that I was at Petra a lot. And that's, uh, that's how I got to Petra. And actually the surveying is how I initially got to Yemen, which ended up being my dissertation came out of that project. Right. Even though that was not a project uh, associated really, other than renting the equipment and renting, you know, me <laughs> and my services. <laughs> I wonder how much Stuart pocketed from that because I certainly, I got plane tickets and I got fed and that was good enough, I guess. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So this is the first time going back and it's a long time since I've been paid to do field work. It's been over 20 years since I've been paid to do field work. Well, given that information, that's why, you know, I think your salary of six and a half dollars per hour is more than generous. Yeah. So, that's that's almost yeah. double what I got before. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, I think that's about. exactly half of what I got before. <laughs> I'm a firm believer in you can't discount other experience. And, you know, not only have you kept a toe in, you know, with just stuff you've done at, uh, at your school and, you know, obviously this podcast and things like that. But, you know, you got to just kind of look at a person sometime because archaeological field work is not that hard, but you need people that can be intuitive. Mm -hmm. You need people that can look at something and make a decision and know when to ask questions, know when to make decisions on their own mm -hmm. and, and just do that thing. To me, those are the most important skills. And that's not something you have a problem with. And, you know, archaeology and just like CRM in the area, even though you've never worked in this area before, you can learn that, right? Oh, yeah. You know what artifacts look like. So yeah. that's, I'm not worried I think people that. focus on the wrong things when they try to hire sometimes. They focus like, we need regional experience. You need to have seen artifacts and features in this area before. I'm like, really? Is that really the most important thing you're looking for here? Not like somebody who will work well with your other people and, and you know, mm -hmm. is... <laughs> <laughs> Not a douchebag. <laughs> hey, did you uh, did you happen to read the uh, the ongoing thread on the uh, the members only Slack? Because uh, one of the members, I don't know if I should be saying his name, but one of our members was mentioning that he is going into CRM, and another member yes. suggested a number of things to do, and it wasn't so much about the technical skills. It was it was so much about just the the how you comport yourself in the field. Ask questions. Yeah. You know, if you've run out of things to do, ask for something else to do. And in my experience, you're, you're right. that The archaeology, the field work of archaeology isn't particularly difficult. The, the tough part, the part that always grinds anybody down is, you know, well, physical stuff and that just being uncomfortable and being in a work situation that is uncomfortable physically for an extended period of time. And that's the stuff that, that always seems to make people crack. Uh, either, mm -hmm. you know, with internal fighting or with, you know, risky and or abusive behavior and so on. It's the stuff that you can't really teach. You can certainly make a, people aware of, but there right. are personalities that gravitate to field work and can thrive in it. And there are personalities that, that become toxic in it and, and leave. And, and they might be good scholars, good workers in other environments, but, but that business about being in the field... Mm -hmm. that's its own skill. Um, you yeah. know, and that's one that, again, it's, it's harder than the actual, the archeology span of it. So I'm, I'm dying to get back in here because uh, <laughs> I know the, uh, that you've worked with the other field tech on a number of different projects in the past. And I'm yep. really looking forward to meeting him. I've obviously, I've met you and Rachel <laughs> before, and I'm looking forward to, to, to working with you guys. Uh, and yeah. I'm looking forward to living in a tent for a month or so. Because <laughs> it's been a long time since I've had to do that, and I, and I used to enjoy yeah. that. Uh, and fortunately, you know, doing uh, basically a desk job, IT for the last twenty years, uh, I at my age don't have the same kind of physical ailments as a lot of people who've been doing field archaeology, you know, That's since true. their twenties or thirties. Uh, you know, yeah. my knees are good, my back is uh, is good. I don't have uh, any of the, the, the kind of nagging recurrent stress injuries. So <laughs> it's going to be a fun yeah. challenge, but it's, 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 you know, wow, it's out of left field. <laughs> well, 
I will say at least we're easing you into a month of camping that you haven't done in a while because there's, you know, this is an RV park. So there's power, there's water, there's <laughs> Wi-Fi, there's showers, there's yeah, 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 you know, laundry. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> when a I restaurant asked you, on site. I was asking you <laughs> so I could know what kind of equipment I had to get. And you said, oh yeah, there's ice there. I thought, oh, well, that's going to make living in the desert out of a cooler so much easier <laughs> than if there's yes. no ice. Oh, you're yeah, having dirt yeah. for dinner again. Yes. <laughs> it's the only thing that didn't spoil. Well, and then, and then of course, the other good thing we always offer it up because we were in our 36 foot RV here. So, you know, we have air conditioning if it gets too oppressive and you want to hang out in here in the evening or something like that. And it's nice. But then again, we're in the high desert too. You're not on the mm-hmm. East Coast anymore, buddy. This, nope. we're, we're hitting mid to high 80s this week right now because we're in a little bit of a heat wave for the end of May, early mm-hmm. June. But still overnight, like I woke up this morning, I get up at uh, 4.40 every morning and I look at my watch and I look at the temperature and it was 39 degrees. <laughs> uh, see, <laughs> so, that's the part I'm worried about is the the, the, the night yeah. cold temperatures. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think I'm actually not living out of a tent. I think I'm going to live out of two tents. The big six person <laughs> tent that we had when we used to go car camping uh, as a family, that's where yeah. my stuff will live. And a tiny little bivouac one-person tent that will be where I sleep so I can keep it warm with my own body heat. That's true. So we'll see. Because I know if I slept in that six-person tent, I would freeze. Yeah, it's just too big. You can't heat that space up. Nope. Um, yeah, I mean, if you've got a good sleeping bag and and good clothes to wear, like sleeping clothes, stuff like that, I mean, you'll be fine. We've slept in, we've slept in that many times. And uh, it's definitely doable. Now, that's also the temperatures now. By the time we hit July, the overnight lows will probably be in the low 50s, which is much more Oh, that's reasonable. comfortable. So... Yeah, that's good yeah, sleeping that's weather. Comfortable. Well, speaking of being out here, we were going to mention some of the challenges. Like one of the other companies that I'm working with, the one of the PIs there, he's coming out here, but he's debating on staying here at the RV park or staying in Elko mm-hmm. because on the days off, you know, he's like, I'm running a company. And I'm like, yeah, I'm running like three of them right now. And I'm working for another one and I'm doing Zoom calls all day and I'm still living at the RV park. So it's definitely possible if you plan for it, right? Mm hmm. Now, I'm trying to use the camp Wi-Fi here as much as I can since very few people are here and the other people that are here are actually way down at the other end of the RV park where they can't even reach the Wi-Fi. We're pretty much the only ones on it. And Mm -hmm. we have a um, booster on our uh, roof that will, you know, they don't work very well, but really what they're supposed to do is receive that signal and then boost it and boost my output back to it for better upload speeds. Mm-hmm. It does do a decent job. When we're connected to that, it does work a little bit better than we're just connected to the Wi-Fi. But still, you got to kind of roll with the punches. And I, I jockey back and forth between Teams calls and Zoom calls, depending on the client and who I'm talking to. But both of them have the ability to call in on a phone line. And on our phone service works great. So I just call in with the phone. And then I have no broken audio unless something weird happens with the phone call, which does happen. But most of the time I have no broken audio. And then I'm just dealing with a slightly laggy screen because 99% of the time we're screen sharing too, because mostly what I do is training people and and doing software implementation. So I'm either looking at their screen or they're looking at my screen, Mm -hmm. but there's always a screen share involved, like nearly a hundred percent of the time. That's all doable. And, you know, I hear, I hear so many objections to the aspects of digital in the field. And one of my favorite ones I heard lately was on the huge thread on Archeo Field Techs on Facebook about somebody put up a poll about not, are you using tablets, but it was worded like, mm. why do you hate tablets so much or something like that? And it was like, oh, because of the battery. And it was just this whole tablet hate rant. And there was like 150 comments. And one of the people said, you know what, my company wants us to use tablets, but you know, we're already on a remote camping project and we're having a hard enough time keeping the the trimbles and the computers and the cameras and all that stuff charged. Now we got to charge up tablets. Mm-hmm. And again, I'm thinking you're not even addressing the problem the right way. Somebody commented on that one and said, you know, if you use the right software, it can replace half that stuff you just mentioned. So there's that. Mm. And then also you just got to think about it right. First off, you don't need to use tablets. People can use their own personal cell phones and it'll work just fine. And they're, they're definitely charging those up at night, however they're doing it. So use the gear you have and look at the right software. And then I said too, on that same thread, I was like, you know what? You got to use the right tool for the right job. If I end up with a project, I'm, I am a hundred percent digital, right? But if mm-hmm. I end up on a project where a client is paying me to do some work and there's literally no cell service. The app I'm using is simply not going to work. Maybe it's 120 degrees out. I got a job in Death Valley and I was an idiot and took it. 
tablets simply won't work when it's 120 degrees. I don't care what you do unless you've got an air-cooled, you know, freezer case to walk your tablet around in. It's simply not going to work and you're just going to have to use paper. Conversely, if you're working in minus 40 degree temperatures, you shouldn't be first off. But second, if you are, your tablet's also not going to work then. (laughs) It's too cold. (laughs) So... But there's times of the day when it will work and they take up such little space that, you know, if maybe if you're working in Death Valley and it's 125 during the day, again, go home, but also start at five o'clock in the morning when it's 80, you know what I mean? Or 70 or something like that. Get as much work as you can done during that time frame and be productive. And then if you have to switch to paper, go ahead, but also maybe split your day up and work the last half of the day in the evening when it's only 90 and your tablets will work, you know? So you have to use the right tools for the right situation. And sometimes that's multiple tools during a situation. Now, in 10 years of being mostly digital, I've stopped carrying paper. But I know that if I had to use paper for some reason, and first off, I should know that coming into the project. But if Mm -hmm. I had to use paper for some reason, largely weather related, it's easy enough for me to get the PDFs and run into town and print out some. I have a printer here. I can just print out some copies and we can do that and then transcribe later. But right tool for the right job. I'm not opposed to paper. I'm just like, if you don't need to use it, don't. And if you can use something else that's better for your database, then, you know, do that. Yeah, I've got a couple comments. I don't disagree with what you're saying, but uh, a couple things that jumped out to me about that complaint that you saw of, you know, I've got to charge this, I got to charge that, I got to charge the other thing. If those things are being required by the company that hired them, isn't it the responsibility of that company to make sure that they can do that? (laughs) You know, shouldn't the company be getting them a generator or power banks or something to be able to facilitate that? Because that seems really reckless on the part of the company to hire people, send them out with things that need to be charged up nightly and not provide them the the, the proper means to do that and leave it on them to to take care. I mean, I realize that that the actual field techs are going to have to schedule that into their routine, you know, make sure I plug everything in at night. But how they do that shouldn't be their decision. That should be something that, I mean, it shouldn't be them planning and figuring it all out from, from the get-go. It shouldn't be their purchases, certainly. Uh, that that If it's being required by the company, I would assume that the company, mm-hmm. in order to do their own damn job, <laughs> would want to make sure that that's taken care of. You know, you spend $1,000 on a good-sized generator, uh, that that's probably better than than having lost data and you know you lose a day's yeah. work or something that that's probably more expensive to lose that that work than uh, uh, anyhow <laughs> you're totally right yeah, uh, I mean when they say when they say you've got to take a take a truck to get places they don't say bring your own truck or go buy one they give yeah. you a truck right you know what I mean. Uh, And then the other thing that I was going to comment on, the charging has been a perennial problem. I was talking about being in Petra. That was in the the mid-90s. And it was (laughs) such a problem. People, The the power in Jordan is 220 volt, but all we're an American project. And so all our equipment, all the computers, the total station, the everything was 110. And so (laughs) we had these great big brick step-down transformers that people, for some reason, kept on plugging in in the wrong direction, right? And just kept on frying things. And, they, you know, even those little like wall wart, maybe you don't remember these from, from, but there were these, uh, you know, up until maybe 2000, you'd get these wall wart transformers for, for mm. travel to, to Europe and you'd plug them into yeah. the wall and, you know, it was 220 in and 110 out. They'd do those and they'd plug those directly into the, the power strip and plug the power strip into the wall, burning out the power strip. So I ended up drawing this great big poster. I still have it on my computer. <laughs> How to plug <laughs> things in with just wall plug, the transformer, the the power strip, and then your equipment. Because I got so fed up with every, I would come out to the project toward the end of the project usually to do some finishing mapping for them and some photography for them. And I got fed up with having to bring an extra suitcase full of chargers because everything that everybody burnt out during the course of the year. Yeah. Well, and it's gotten so much easier too, right? Because almost every truck that's been made in the past like five years has an uh, an AC outlet mm-hmm. somewhere in the truck, whether it's in the bed or, or in the like, uh, you know, armrest or something like that. But 
not hard to find these days. Well, so, you that know. and USB 5 volt becoming a standard interface for just yeah. about everything really helps too. Yeah, totally. Totally. So, all right, well, let's take a break and switch gears a little bit and we'll come back on the other side and, and kind of talk about the last episode that we did back in a minute. Cool. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30 off your first three months or go to zencastr.com and use the code archaeotech that's a-r-c-h-a-e-o-t-e-c-h you've worked hard for what you have your money your assets your 401k and home isn't it all worth protecting nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft lifelock ultimate plus helps protect your finances with up to three million dollars in reimbursement LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 156. And last week, I interviewed Leszek Pavlovich, and he is one of the lead researchers from Northern Arizona University, regarding an article that's been going around all over the place about the, essentially the convolution, is it convolutional neural network that mm-hmm. uh, they developed? It's a, it's a, they didn't invent that idea, but they invented the network for this particular application. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and what they're doing basically, if you want to hear more about it, go listen to the interview because it was really great. It was awesome yeah. interviewing him. I didn't mention this on the show because I didn't want to geek out too much, but he was on Jeopardy and I thought that was pretty cool. Um, that's how I got to know him actually is a friend worked with him and said, Hey, you like Jeopardy. This guy was on Jeopardy. A friend of him on Facebook and, and there were, this is the first time we've actually spoken. So kind of, kind of geeked out on that a little bit, but anyway, the guy is super smart. I uh, just listened to the interview. He's done some crazy things and what they did here is they were, they created a computer program that they basically teach how to recognize a certain type of pottery in the Southwest that they're working with. Mm-hmm. And it does pretty good. It recognizes, it learns from its own mistakes and recomputes its model and does better the next time. And I'm bringing this up because A, I wanted to get Paul's reactions on this because you've had a chance to hear the interview and, and read the article, but also you've heard some some chatter about this on uh, on Twitter that I mm-hmm. wanted to talk about as well. So first, what did you think about the interview with Leszek? Oh, I thought it was really good. I um, I enjoyed it. I'm glad that I saw that, what was it, fizz.org maybe, mm-hmm. <laughs> article initially that I sent to you and that <laughs> fortuitously you happen to know the guy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I have a, a particular take on, on expert systems and so on in that my dad, who was a physician, Worked for years doing an expert system because I was a terminology at the time for monitoring diabetes patients. And the idea was mm. that, you know, they could help physicians, you know, family doctors anywhere in the world, someplace out in the middle of nowhere, somebody that didn't have access to an endocrinologist to be able to ask the questions that an endocrinologist would want to do of a patient with diabetes in order to help monitor them. And it was a, it was this incredible collaboration between a, a programming company a pharmaceutical company and the Mayo Clinic where my dad was. And it was always a feedback loop. It was always going between what you can do with the computer to improve the questions and what the the doctors can ask to improve the computer models. Right. Right. And so it was back and forth. And and so the the conversation reminded me of that. And, And also, you know, you're right. He's smart, but he also didn't like bog us down in the interview with, uh, with, (laughs) yeah, wacky terminology, which it could have gone. I mean, sometimes when you talk to specialists in certain domains, 
they have troubles talking to other people outside of that domain. And I didn't get that sense. I, I did understand fairly clearly what he wanted to do. And I know it's different. The CNN, this convolutional neural network is very different than the expert system stuff that my dad was working on. But it's not dissimilar in that it's a feedback between models and people. What it, what it does differently, in my understanding, is that the models can reinf- can be used by the models to make better models. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and then the other thing that should not be lost is that he's also an archaeologist. You know, he worked as a field archaeologist for years. Uh, so it's not, you know, drop in somebody from Google to go tell you how to do something that only has comp sci experience, but it was drop in somebody that has deep comp sci experience who also happens to have deep archaeology experience. Yeah, right? totally. And so I'm glad that that was mentioned in the interview because like you mentioned, I saw some some chatter on Twitter. I mean, at this point, you've probably seen comment of this. I think it was in the New York Times. It's been in a whole bunch of other articles, this thing about teaching computers how to identify pottery. And what I like about it as just as, as a general idea is that not that the computers are the be all end all, but one of the things that you want to do as a scientist is have reproducibility. Mm-hmm. And if you're just, if you're going from a list of descriptions of a wear type, of a a decorative motif on pottery, of whatever it is that you're using to to do your typology, it's not reproducible in any kind of mathematical sense, in any kind of statistical (laughs) sense. I mean, you and I might have the same training on a certain kind of pottery and look at something and decide it's a little different. But yeah. We would have to have the conversation to say, well, no, this is a slightly different color. No, these hashes are, are finer line than those hashes are. You know, something like that. And and major part of my dissertation was actually doing pottery typology in Yemen for part of Yemen that never has had one before. So I, I, right. I kind of steeped in this. The Twitter chatter, somebody posted, hey, did you see this? And a lot of people that I really like and respect, a few of them I've met in person Mm-hmm. Others I've just interacted with online, but but they're people, they're, they're online friends. Most of them were just like, nope, 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 <laughs> fuck that, nope, hell no. <laughs> yeah. And and uh, it made me really anxious. I'm a little prone to anxiety because that whole leaving a job I've had for 20 years. Um, <laughs> yeah, that, <laughs> at the moment, uh, but, uh, that would yeah, do it. Yeah, things, but my... my my reaction to things <laughs> like that might be a little amplified right now. <laughs> um, what was most striking to me, though, was I, I didn't chime in because I hadn't yet read the the original paper and I hadn't yet listened to the the interview, so I didn't know the details of it. Mm-hmm. But I knew enough to know that their nose were really knee jerk reactions. Sure. Right. They might not be Luddites themselves. So one said, oh, by the time I've scanned and photographed and uploaded to the computer, I could have just done this myself. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, that's not the point. And you're not <laughs> photographing the, the diagnostic shirts. What the? Mm. Okay. Maybe that's the difference between CRM and the kind of archaeology I did. I don't know. I will learn next month. But it did seem a little shocking to me, some of the objections. And one of the people who was engaged actually did read the original paper and also knew enough about the programming that they went to the open source code for these uh, for the, the the learning models and said it's there if there's something wrong you can actually look at it and assess it and people were still saying yeah but what about if you have it rotated the wrong way yeah and the response was well, that's actually taken into account in the uh, in the program <laughs> is rotation. <laughs> right, well, right. what if you did? You know, it was just this after this after this to still get back to the point of no, no way. I don't ever want to deal with this again. It made me anxious, but it also reminded me of another conversation I had, geez, twenty five years ago, when I was the site surveyor on that project that ended up you know spinning off my dissertation. Mm-hmm. In Yemen, where an elderly scholar was staying at our house for a few days, and he saw me working on the computer at night and gave me a 20-minute lecture about what computers cannot do, <laughs> that I couldn't get a word in edgewise <laughs> yeah. while I was doing some of the things he said would never be able to be done by a computer. <laughs> That's right. 
<laughs> so I, th- th- there's no, there's no here nor there. And, and actually it's a good discussion. I mean, the nose, even though it made me uncomfortable, that, that is actually what we should do, right? We should be saying mm-hmm. no. And then, well, no, actually. And yeah. well, maybe yes. Or no, and no, and hell no, because you find some <laughs> deeply deep flaws with it. You know, yeah. we see this, oh, a lot of things about like, that basically get criticized as, uh, as digital phrenology, right? Mm-hmm. Trying to find out by a photograph of somebody's face, who's the more likely criminal. No, 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 don't do that. <laughs> the stakes seem a little lower to me to like, this is pottery type A or pottery type B. And then have somebody say, well, no, they're, they're actually the same type because I've got pots that yeah. have both of them. But it, it, it's yeah. a conversation there. And that's the, that's the important part of it. It is. And I, I think I think you're totally right. A good spin on this is to take a look at the nose. And then if you can't shoot every single one of those down, well, then there, then you've got some holes to plug, right? And, mm-hmm. and that's valid. So yeah, absolutely. You know, absolutely go do that. Yeah. And just when you said that that guy 25 years ago that says, here's, you know, here's what computers can't do. That just made me think it just, it's a similar type of ignorant comment about somebody who didn't actually research something. I was, I don't know. I was being an Uber geek when I was in the Navy and I was, we were out on the Shocker. ship and I was reading, I was reading on the origin of species by Charles Darwin. Cause I'd never read it before. And I'm sitting in my shop in the avionics shop. And one of the guys comes up and I've been reading it for days and nobody ever said anything. And he comes up and he just looked straight at me and said, pointed at me and said, I don't believe in anything that book has to say. And I was like, Oh yeah. What was the part you disagreed with? And I was like, have you actually read this book? (laughs) He's like, (laughs) well, no, but evolution. And I was like, yeah, okay. But there's like 400 pages here and they don't all talk about evolution. So, you know, let's, let's do your research before you start making some, uh, some sweeping generalizations there. But you know, another thing as well, like you were mentioning, talking about this one, you know, this one CNN that they made to do this one thing for pottery and, a lot of the objections have been to, okay, well, you know, we're doing this. And like you just said too, it's not like we're doing like, you know, digital phrenology, like looking at faces and saying, which one's going to be a criminal. However, with enough data, you know what I mean? Like with enough data and enough data points that you truly understand, I feel like it's, it's like they always say, if you knew where the position of every atom was in the universe right now, you could predict the future and the past because you know how they're going to interact. I mean, that's just, it's just math, right? So I wondered, and I kind of mentioned this in the podcast, but I think Leshik kind of blew over it or maybe I cut out or something like that, but he didn't really talk about it. But I was like, okay, so this is one CNN that does one thing. You've got another one that does another thing and you've got another one that does another mm-hmm. thing. And he said, none of them are approaching AI because if you talk to a true AI scientist, they're like, this is so far and we don't even know how to really get to AI right now. Like true AI, right. like mm-hmm. it's just so far out. But I'm like, yeah, but what if you take all these individual really smart components and put them together and get them working with like, what if you had a CNN that its inputs were other CNNs? (laughs) Like how, I mean, could you start really just kind of mapping all this kind of stuff together? That's what I was wondering and really make like an Uber tool for doing different things that hopefully doesn't take over the world or am I way (laughs) off base? I don't know anything about this. Yeah. I I don't know that we're as, I don't know that we're as close to that as, you know, it's, it's much easier to say than, than to, to, to build, yeah. obviously. Yeah. And Lesage had, uh, he definitely seemed to be pushing away from that. It's like, don't even go that way. You know, that's not what we're really interested in doing anymore Yeah, with AI. And I forgot what he said. It's like classic AI or something. Yeah. I can't remember what the term was. Yeah. To differentiate this kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And then... The part that we really have to remember always, 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 always to, to avoid getting to like a minority report kind of situation is that, that, and we've talked about this before, you know, with ethics and digital archaeology is why, why is not just digital separated from archaeology, but why is ethics like an extra, you know, special sauce that you throw on your archaeology? If it's not in there from the <laughs> baked into it, <laughs> you're doing it wrong. So we have to always yeah. keep an eye on what the implications are, what we're doing with the data that we have, how it impacts actual human beings. There's a lot more nuance there that we have to be very careful with, very, you know, we have to tiptoe through. We have to be, not do things just because we can, but also 
try to anticipate what the effects of, are going to be. So right. my inclination, again, and no surprise here, is to step back from that and you know make very good, very domain specific kind of, uh, for lack of a better term, AIs, and not even try to put together the bigger ones because I think that we'd have to have a lot of experience with the smaller ones to get a sense of where the cracks are going to be, where things are going mm-hmm. to get abused. And again, and to stop doing the digital phrenology stuff, because that's just oh, <laughs> every time. I mean, every few weeks, there's a new one you, yeah. know, you see on the news feeds. And just, and every time I see them, I'm like, why? Who thought this was a good idea? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, agreed. The only people well, who are very secure in their knowledge that they might <laughs> never accidentally get tagged by one. Yeah, yeah, indeed, indeed. Well, I I think we're going to solve the AI issue again. It's just math, and I'm excited for what that kind of technology can do for mm-hmm. uh, really for our jobs because there are so many, so many tedious things. And anybody that says that they would never have something doing this kind of analysis for them, or they would never have, they would never use a tablet or a smartphone in the field to record archaeology, and and they don't care about making things. One of the one of the other comments on that huge thread in Facebook was, I don't care if it makes things easier for those in the office, I'm not doing it. And there were a few of us business owners that were like, great, don't send me a resume because <laughs> I don't want it. And, you know, it's it's not about necessarily making things easier for somebody or being cheap on a project. It's about being able to do more good archaeology and not have to worry about the minutia of it. Like we're just real quick here. We're on this project that I was thinking about this just the other day, like this project that we're going to be on for the next couple months, it's just a fun walk in the high desert and the mountains in some really beautiful areas. But for those of us on the business side of it, like the forest service is ruining it. Like they are making so many different things that we have to do for this environmental assessment and so many little, you know, just hoops that we got to jump through and all these little things. And I'm just like, Guys, I mean, I understand the legalities of it, but come on, we're recording archaeological sites here. We know how to write those up. We'll give you a report of what's there. Leave us alone. <laughs> just, they're just overcomplicating it. I don't know how I got off on that tangent, but don't overcomplicate things. We just want to do more archaeology. We want to do it better, more boots on the ground kind of stuff and be more accurate. And the only way we're going to do that is, to be honest, unless we all become supercomputers ourselves, which, you know, we are to a degree, but it's going to take some help. So, yeah. Yep. All right. Tie it back to the uh, to that article and to the interview. I, you know, mm-hmm. I would love to have since I said I developed a typology for my region in Yemen from scratch. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I had a few examples from other people's work, but nobody had a comprehensive one like I did. I would love to run that back through to see what kind of groupings, what 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 hit and what didn't. That's the kind of reproducibility that I would love to see. You know, check was I wrong? Some model off. Mm-hmm. Maybe we can refine what I did. Maybe we can refine what the model, but where those disjunctures happen is actually a learning experience or an yeah. opportunity for one. And, uh, and that's, that's cool. That, that, the human learning part of it alongside <laughs> the machine learning. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, let's take our final break and come back and wrap this up on the other side. Back in a minute. The JCPenney Friends and Family Sale is back. And this week, we're passing the savings on to you. Use your extra 30% off coupon to prep your home and style your family for Easter. That's extra savings on top of our great low prices. Plus, share your coupon with everyone you know and love. It's always better when we save together. JCPenney, make everybody count. Offer valid 311 through 317. Exclusion supply. See store or jcp.com for details. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Hi, welcome back to the Architect Podcast, episode 156. Today, Chris and I are talking about this, that, and the other thing. <laughs> so this third final segment of today's podcast, I'm just going to you know throw out a few random things. And the first one that I wanted to do is, Chris, you were talking about the booster that you've got on your RV for the um, for Wi-Fi. So I just wanted to mm-hmm. you know give a little tech tip 
for our listeners, you know, most of our listeners are pretty tech savvy. They probably understand this already, but just in case somebody doesn't know the difference, I think this is useful. Yeah. With home Wi-Fi, a lot of companies sell boosters or repeaters. Yep. And so basically you take a device and you put it halfway between your router, the main you know, where the internet comes into your house and the back office where you're trying to work that never mm-hmm. had good, good reception. And you put that repeater there and it takes the first signal and bounces it back out and takes your return signal and bounces back to the, uh, the router itself. The problem with those things is that each one that you put in has the speed of the network. Yeah. And the way that Wi-Fi works, it's, it doesn't talk device A to device V. Everything is a bit of a broadcast. Mm-hmm. Right. So that repeater is yelling and then anything that thinks it's supposed to respond, responds, and then it takes that and feeds it back. <laughs> so there's a whole nother technology out there that you have probably seen and you probably don't know what the difference is. It's called mesh networks. Um, yeah. And there are different ones, Eero, Google Wi-Fi, TP-Link, their Deco series. I'm sure there are a dozen other ones at this point. But this is important to us because this has been the solution for absolutely everybody's Wi-Fi problems over the last year, the year of COVID, while everybody's doing their their remote learning and remote teaching for, at my school, has been to get them mm-hmm. one of these mesh networks instead of a repeater, instead of a, a stronger wi- main Wi-Fi router. I mean, I'm presuming that they've got a good pipe into the house. Okay, If yeah, you have yeah. bad internet access, none of that internal stuff is going to help you. But so many people would be, you know, oh, it's work. It's great if I work in the living room right next to where the <laughs> Wi-Fi comes in or the, the, the internet comes in and I've got the main Wi-Fi router. But when I work in the bedroom or I work in the back room that I have access to because nobody else is back there, it's nice and quiet. It's terrible reception. So yeah. basically what these things do is they have two networks. They've got one that is the Wi-Fi that you see and that you connect all your devices to, but they have another one that's a back channel that talks between them. Right. right? And so what that has is it's got greater resiliency against interference, against, because it's smart. I mean, it's not it's something inherent with radio. It, it has greater resiliency to interruptions, but also you don't slow down your network speed for each one mm-hmm. of these that you put in. And so I've been using them in my own house and apartment. Uh, I've been using the TP-Link ones that are a few years old now, and they've been yeah. fantastic in places that I haven't been able to get good reception You know, with all the different repeaters and extenders and high-powered antennas and all the crap I tried over the years. And as soon as I put these things in, boom, suddenly all our network problems were gone in the house and in the apartment. Nice, uh, nice. And so I just want to, to recommend to any of our listeners, if you're trying to do stuff with a repeater in your house, spend the extra money, throw away the repeater, throw away your, your regular router and go with one of these mesh networks because you're going to be so much happier. It's going to be faster. It's going to be more saturated around your house. And if you find some spot that, that doesn't have good signal, instead of putting yet another repeater in and having your network speed yet again, <laughs> you put it in and it just repeats the, the yeah. network and talks to yeah. the other ones happily on the back channel and you've extended the, the, the coverage. So that simple little tech tip that I wanted to get out there, because when you mentioned booster, I mean, you don't have that option in an RV. <laughs> you've got a totally no. different situation. But if people are thinking of that for their home networks, there's a right answer and a wrong answer. Yeah. And mainly the, it's only like a tertiary feature that it's a Wi-Fi booster. Mm. The one that we have in RV, the antenna that we have up there is actually a cell receiver. We can put SIM cards inside of this router and then it, it picks up relatively faint cell signals and tries mm-hmm. to, tries to amplify those as well and, and include shipping it back to the, back to the cell tower. So it just happens to do Wi-Fi at the same time. Yeah. But yeah, the, I, I can't speak highly enough of those things you were talking about too. We had Eero actually mm-hmm. for a couple of years in our townhouse the townhouse is like a lot of townhouses. It it's kind of like long and narrow. It was two floors, mm-hmm. long and narrow, and the internet came into one room on the top floor, on the second floor, and it's like the rest of the house was completely out. <laughs> it's like you couldn't do anything. <laughs> and the Eero I got, I think I got it at Costco, and it came with its own router and then mm-hmm. two nodes for the mesh network. We put one in the master bedroom, which was at the other end of the house from where the internet came into the router upstairs. And then we put one in kind of down in the middle downstairs that was down in the like 
kitchen dining room area. And that was enough to cover basically the whole house. And we had high speed internet basically anywhere. And we had a lot of devices that are constantly tugging on that internet too. I mean, from the washer dryer to the stove, to the, you know, all the iPads and, you know, the nest front door, the lights, everything is just like tugging on the Wi-Fi, And you don't realize how much that that stuff is kind of pulling a little bit, even if it's not very often, it adds up. So having the ability to spread that out a little bit and have that high speed internet all over the place was, uh, was pretty nice. Yeah. I'm going to make just one other quick comment. If, uh, if you're looking at buying one of these, you'll see some of them will have, they usually come in three packs. Uh, some of them, the three devices will look identical. So like the TP link deco M fives that I've got there, mm-hmm. three identical devices, whichever one is plugged into the, the cable modem. That's the, Ultra bad, trouble problematic terminology. I was going to say master. That's the main one, and the other ones are the remotes. And it yeah. doesn't matter which one is the main one. Some of these systems, there is like a bigger box that is the main, yeah. and the other ones are remotes. Uh, there's that was the no hero. real big distinction between. Don't let that sway your buying decision, but just be aware that if you're looking at them, thinking you're comparing apples to apples when you're doing your Amazon search and you're wondering why they look different, it's just because it's a slightly different design decision on the part of the uh, the company that makes them. It's not a... uh, it's not, yeah. for all intents and purposes, it's not a, a functional distinction that's going to change how you use it. And speaking of apples, though, that's one of the reasons oh. I think I went with the Eero. I know I'm going to transition <laughs> to that, but I'm, I'm using it as a different segue right now. That's one of the reasons I went with the Eero because it's just a, it's a sleek, like mm-hmm. smooth, round cornered white thing because the router, the Wi-Fi router that it came with, it it just sits up, you know, in another room and that's fine. You know, not a lot of people see that, but we had, you know, we had one of those nodes downstairs plugged into a pretty visible, you know, plug outlet, but it looked nice. It, it wasn't something that was like this crazy monstrosity, had a power cord and I had to mount it or put it somewhere. You know, I don't know if, if any of them look like that, but I'm just saying this one looked presentable, uh, if you will. Right. And mm-hmm. I don't know, to some people that's important that it actually looks good. I don't like wires hanging around. I don't like antennas all over the place. Mm-hmm. This just really fit. So it had a real Apple aesthetic, which is why I was saying that with the kind of like right. the smooth white finish to it. So, and speaking of Apple, as we transition again, officially. Yep. <laughs> so, you know, on this new project, we get prepayment, which really helps. Like they pay 50% ahead of time. So it allows us to, you know, upgrade some gear, do some other things. And, one of the things I've been looking to upgrade because I use it almost daily is my 2015 iPad Pro 12.9 inch. And mm-hmm. that's the first generation of the iPad Pro when they came out. So I've had this thing for six years. The only real downside to it is it's having a hard time reading the Apple Pencil and sometimes some finger inputs on like a lower third of the screen on the right side. Hmm. I don't know what's happened. Some of the sensors in there have just gone bad and I've never really had the time to take it in and get it fixed. I'm sure I could just get the screen replaced and it'll be fine. Mm-hmm. But that being said, uh, you know, it's it's got some of the older technology. It's got a big bezel around it. And with the new iPad Pros coming out with the M1 chip and this starting to be the the harmony of Apple bringing all their devices into the same chipset, which opens them up for the same operating system, which opens them up for, hey, running the same programs, no longer having mobile versus desktop mm-hmm. programs. That's just, that's where I'm hoping all this goes. So I ordered my new iPad. I ordered it probably two weeks ago. It's Apple saying it's not going to be here till the end of June. So we'll see, but I'm looking forward to getting that. But it's with that new M1 chip and the speeds and the almost edge to edge screen on it. I got the new pencil too, because the, the second generation pencil goes with it. Mm-hmm. And oh, and I also got the new keyboard set up, the, the keyboard case that goes with it. What do they call it? The magic keyboard case that right, right, uh, right. that actually came already. That thing's pretty slick. That That's pretty neat. I can't even try it out with my current iPad because it just doesn't fit. It's a completely different setup. But I'm definitely looking forward to that because I've been saying for years when I bought this iPad, I was saying that I would never buy a laptop again. And then three mm-hmm. years later, I bought another laptop. <laughs> Because it's just not ready yet. I'm a little disappointed at the pace that these things are going because really it's business decisions. It's not technological decisions. They've got the same chips now. They've had the ability to change the operating system, but they have to increment these things because they're a big, massive ship to move. And I understand that people are going to be resistant if they move too fast. So they Mm -hmm. have to ease people into it, which again, frustrating for those of us that are ready, that are ready to move into something brand new and figure it out and, and just go. But I'm excited by where the uh, uh, where the possibilities are going with this because just the ability to run 
regular programs, I think, on mobile devices is going to be a game changer for our entire society, mm-hmm. you know, because mobile apps suffer some problems and they're, they're a big drain on resources for app development companies, too, because unless you're solely a mobile app developer, you know, you've probably got a desktop component and now you've got to retool everything for the mobile app environment. And it's just it's a it's a real drain on resources. And I think that, uh, you know, moving in this direction is going to be better for everybody. So. Yeah, no, it's going to be interesting to see what happens. I just, uh, you know, I do so much on the command line that <laughs> that's the <laughs> one thing that would keep me from going full tablet is, uh, yeah, because <laughs> I want the command line. Uh, yeah. It's funny, just uh, this brief aside, this doesn't even really matter, but uh, the M1 chips. So we have 465 new computers for students for next year. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That, that's for the high school. We also have. Yeah you know, <laughs> another 500 <laughs> for other grades, uh, 600 and imaging those. So we always used to like wipe a new computer and put a custom image that we built out with all our software and everything. Imaging those has been a real bear because these M1s, some of the tools that Apple used to have, the, the command line tools for dealing with a, a brand new computer don't exist. Oh, and wow. they've been only releasing them. We just got to the point last week of actually being able to image them properly. And one of the tools that we use to get through some of those initial uh, startup screens, mm-hmm. <laughs> actually the hack that the uh, programmer did is beautiful. It um, it turns on the, the voice commands yeah. and then speaks text that the voice <laughs> command hears in order to continue through a few of the setup screens. Oh my God. That's it's awesome. Just, so they, so they turn on, you know, they've got, uh, they started imaging this week. They've done about 300 of these 465. And when they start them up, you hear these computers talking to themselves. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyhow, That's awesome. We're getting to the tail end. I want to give uh, our listeners another tech tip, something that I've been wanting to talk about for a bit here. Uh, and since we're talking about Apple, that's my segue because this pertains specifically to QGIS on Mac OS. I've mentioned many times that, I, that I've got this programming side project that I've been doing with uh, Total Stations and that uh, when I finally got it working, I did a bit of a topo map of my backyard. I went to go create a, a contour map of the topo points that I took uh, in QGIS. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's pretty simple. You have to, it's an extension, a plugin for QGIS for contours. And I go to run it on the Mac and it says it can't do it. Okay. And the specified reason that it couldn't do it is because Python, which QGIS uses for a lot of its own internal programming, didn't have certain mathematical plugins itself, uh, modules. Hmm. Uh, I think it was Panda. Was it Pandas? Matplotlib hmm. was definitely part of it. Anyhow, it doesn't matter which ones in particular, but it said it couldn't do it. Okay. So I took an old laptop that I had and I installed Ubuntu Linux on it and installed QGIS on that and took my data points and I did the contour plan there. Hmm. Uh, which was the hard way to do it, you know, build out a whole new machine <laughs> in order to run QGIS properly. Yeah. Uh, and then a couple of weeks ago, I went back and I looked at it and I looked at the download page for QGIS to see if they had a newer version that maybe fixed this problem. And I realized something that I missed the first time through is that they have two downloads for the Mac. One is their official download that has bundled in it like executables within the uh, the bundle of the application itself, they have a version of Python 2, which is now deprecated. But there's wow. another link that allows you to use the Python 3 version that you have installed on your computer. And I much, much, much prefer Python 3 anyhow. And I downloaded that and lo and behold, suddenly the contour plan worked. Mm-hmm. And so I was really happy and, you know, no more errors. I can install stuff on my system like I normally would. And I can use the Python version that I prefer and blah, blah, blah. So if you're on a Mac and you're trying to get QGIS running, what I strongly recommend is rather than use the official distribution of it, you look down on the same thing, just a little, long, and there's another link that they have to somebody else's distribution. Hmm. Looks scary as hell. This guy's actually been around for a long time, but I don't think he's actually updated the look of his website. I'm saying his, I don't even know the person's gender. So they haven't even updated the look of their website in (laughs) 15 years. Um, And 
you, the first time you click the link, it raises every last alarm bell because it's King Chaos, K-Y-N-G-C-H-A-O-S. <laughs> you know? And you go to this this crappy looking site that makes you think, oh, this is just malware central. <laughs> and uh, anyhow, so what they had done is they bundled up the QGIS without its internal dependencies. And they also have links to a few external Unix libraries um, yeah. Goodell and the link to the official Python installer version 3.9, whatever right. it is today, 3.9.4, I think. Yeah. And that one worked like a charm. So if you're trying to do this on a Mac and you're trying to get QGIS, look for that link on QGIS's download page. I mean, they they vetted this. They've, mm-hmm. They approve it. It's just not the way they mm-hmm. bundled it. Uh, because it's not an all-in-one, and uh, and I strongly, again, just like I strongly recommend mesh networks, I strongly recommend you go get King Chaos and then send them some love because uh, they've been doing this for a <laughs> long, long time, and I'm pretty sure it was King Chaos's grass builds back in the day that I used for my uh, for my dissertation. Nice, yeah. I literally just opened QJS yesterday for this project, so. I use it all the time. It's great. Yeah. So if you're running into problems with it, if you try to run a plugin or a mm-hmm. certain command and it doesn't work, you might want to look at this alternate uh, bundle of it. Yeah. An interesting thing is I've updated to Big Sur since mm-hmm. I used it last and I didn't even think about it. I just opened it. Uh, I opened I last time I opened QJS because I, I honestly don't have to use it that often. And last time mm-hmm. I opened it was back in September or probably a little bit later than that when I was wrapping this project up. And that was it. So I haven't installed any updates. It's a few versions back. Um, there's mm-hmm. already been, you know, quite a few since then. And and I noticed that when I opened it up, but my project opened fine and I was able to do it fine. So Good. that's the nice thing about this kind of stuff that unless you're looking for some other software or you're bringing it to, you know, you're like bringing it to a different machine or, you know, maybe there's an operating system requirement for an upgrade. There's not really that much reason to upgrade and it'll just keep on working as long as it's not conflicting with anything, which is nice. Yeah. So... Yeah. As long as the dependencies still work. Uh, I right. haven't tried it on my M1 Mac from work, mm-hmm. so I had to do that just for yucks. But uh, Python runs great on it, and I have no doubt that uh, the QGIS will, but I, I haven't tested it yet. By the way, one last thing. When you mentioned building a whole setup just to get QGIS on there and you know get your data set to work, and you're like, not the most efficient way, it made me think of something I'd heard last year, and I went and found the link for it, and I'll drop it here for you, Paul. Everybody else can Google it, but the guy that got the video game Doom to work on the pregnancy <laughs> test. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know you've probably seen it, but I love it. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, that's very, um, oof. <laughs> I wonder what it <laughs> Yeah, it's just good stuff. <laughs> Doom pregnancy test. <laughs> I know, there's, there's not a more appropriate game you could play on a pregnancy test, I think. <laughs> Uh, there's a joke uh, in there somewhere and I'm just missing it at the moment. I'll we'll think just, of it and I'll, I'll, I'll send it to you on Slack. We, yeah, we should probably just avoid it. <laughs> what? <laughs> I should make it and then send it on Twitter so I can get really uh, roundly nice. criticized nice. for it. There you go. There you go. No, better yet. I'll just make it and think it and not tell anybody. That's That's, that's right. That's right. All right. Well, thanks for sticking around for this sort of potpourri episode. Uh, next time around, we are interviewing Chris Nicholson of the the Digital Archaeological Repository. Is that what TDAR stands for? I believe <laughs> I so. <laughs> yeah, it's it's run out of Arizona. I can't remember if it's Arizona State or University of Arizona. We'll find out all those details. What is TDAR? What can you use it for? What do they use it for? you know, what are the benefits of it? So Chris Nicholson is, I think he's the current manager of TDAR running that mm-hmm. whole thing. And I've been having some chats with him uh, over the last month or so. And he is going to come on the show. That's why Paul and I are having a potpourri episode this time. Cause he had to bump his interview from now to, <laughs> to next time. So we had to scramble a little bit, but yeah, it's going to be a fun interview. So tune in for that one on the next episode. So anyway, thanks a lot, everybody. And uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks, Chris. Uh, wash your hands. That's right. We can't stop that. Nope. Not yet. We're not out of it yet. It looks (laughs) like there's light at the end of the tunnel, but we're not out of it yet. (laughs) That's right. Thanks for listening to the Architect Podcast. Links to items mentioned on the show are in the show notes at www.archpodnet.com slash architect. 
Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com and paul at lugal.com. Support the show by becoming a member at arcpodnet.com slash members. The music is a song called Off-Road and is license-free from Apple. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US dollars a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.